the philosophy of psychoanalysis. The lecture you are about to listen to was created by Associate Professor Doris McElwain. This course has been made publicly available, but was recorded for a live student audience. Please enjoy. The following lecture talks about the development of personality, and as such, can talk about some trauma events. Listener discretion is advised. Lecture 24, The Self, The World, and Others. So it, one of the things you need to realize, and I suppose you already do in heaps of ways, is that insecure attachment biases expectations of the quality of future relationships. Now, what that means is that insecure attachment starts to put in place a schema or a worldview about what you expect to be um, the case with others. Thank you very much. I didn't have to go shush. It's great. Okay, so what I'm trying to get you to see is that you've got this residue from your lived experience. You've got this residue of a history of transactions that started off at a non-verbal level. But nonetheless, it's already started to shape your cognitive worldview. And that's going to in turn shape your philosophy, if you like, about other people, which will ultimately you know, perhaps never find its way into words, but it's certainly going to shape your expectations and your actions towards others. So quite quite fascinating. Those who are high on attachment anxiety tend to ruminate, tend to react to stress with intense distress. Um, Drew Weston has this lovely article. I haven't got it online. I'm trying not to bombard you. But you know how the, there's all this research that suggests that positive and negative affect are orthogonal? So you can be high or low on, on positive affect and high or low on negative affect, and that is always a finding, always a finding, except when you've got a lot of clinical people in your sample. So if you suddenly have a lot of, say, borderline people in your sample, this third factor emerges that you never see anywhere else, and it's called intense negative affect, and it's kind of like searingly intense negative affect. So it's quite fascinating that even this, the factor structure of affective space changes if you get a lot of um, borderline people in your sample. Um, apropos nothing in particular, but I just suddenly thought of it and I'm going to tell you it anyway because it's one of my favorite articles of all time, is an article by Zatra, 2004, classic article, absolutely beautiful. And what he and his colleagues found is that if you've been in constant pain for, over the long term, your affective space shrinks such that positive affect and negative affect are on a single dimension. And so you suddenly can only be either high or low. You can't sort of, you know, be high on negative affect and high on positive affect, which is a really interesting finding. That, that's ended up being a bit of a classic article. Lots of people have picked up on it and explored it. One of my friends once got a tooth destroyed by getting headbutted by a sheep during <laughs> herding time. Sheep are not that bright, I don't think. But anyway, she got rammed, poor thing, and they couldn't take the tooth out until the nerve had receded. So she was in pain for nine months of her life. Anyway, she had to wait for this nerve to retract. And she said that she underwent personality transformation during that time. She became a really cussed old lady, even though she was about 18, I think, at the time, because she was just in such agony that she was irritable and grumpy and everything affected her so much. And then the tooth came out and she went back to being her lovely self. But yeah, so, so just to let you know that affective space, even though we map it, there's psychologists and we can go, oh, it's orthogonal and vroom, you've got to watch that it's orthogonal for most populations, but not for every population. And, um, it may not be orthogonal for people that are intense pain, in intense pain. But those who are high on attachment anxiety, because one of the things about anxiety is it makes you 
expect threat everywhere. It makes you hypervigilant to the environment. But it seems that it does very, something very similar to your inner environment, in that if you're high on attachment anxieties and you access painful memories, they spread. So those negative emotions spread from one remembered incident to another. So I actually think that's the engine of rumination. That's how rumination gets up and running. Before you know it, all these negative emotions and negative events are getting linked together, and it's like, ah, it's not as much fun being me as it used to be. Okay. We have also what's called secondary attachment strategies, and I'm not sure how well they're discussed. I'm quite intrigued by them. The word decision I don't like because it sounds terribly conscious, but actually it can be unconscious as well. In other words, if I'm avoidantly attached, I might have decided that it's no use appealing to my mother or father because they never come, right? Now, I may not know I've really made that decision. I just don't try anymore, right? But it's sort of like you realize that proximity seeking doesn't work, and so you do something else. And so um, you have to find other ways of managing the activation that arises from your attachment system activating. You want to get rid of this pain. You want to get rid of this threat. But you can't draw close. So what do you do? Well, one hyperactivating strategy is a preoccupied strategy. You think about emotions and attachments all the time. Another set of strategies is um, the avoidant ones or the deactivating strategies. And they have quite different repercussions for how you handle emotion and quite different repercussions for how much is left over of your brain space to focus on the environment. And that's what I'm going to tell you about now. That wasn't a question. That was just a stretch. Okay. okay. Now, you probably know people that are like this. I feel like I'm, I'm all of these people at different phases of my life. You get hyperactivating strategies where you cling and control. You really want to enhance your similarity to others so that they won't reject you or harm you or hurt you. You get over-dependent on a relationship. You don't think you can do anything yourself. You feel helpless at affect regulating, and you're very hypervigilant to threat. Sometimes if you're slightly trapped in a relationship which denies you your agency and limits your access to the external world, you can become like this. Like this can be produced in people, um, you know, in violent um, possessive relationships, for instance. If you've got a deactivating strategy, it means proximity is not viable, I'm not going to try it, I'm not going to seek support, I'm going to try and handle distress on my own. You might find ways of actually distancing yourself from others, both physically, you go and build a cabin in the woods, or you make yourself look so different from others, or you mark yourself as different as a sort of sub-tribe, like an emo or something like that. I'm, I'm not like others. Um, and this tends to occur in those that are high on attachment avoidance. Now, a really cool article back in 2000, um, I attempted to replicate it in, I think, about 2001 with one of my honours students in various ways that I might tell you about if I can get time. Um, but what I'm interested in is that they're suggesting that what emotion regulation is, is using thoughts and behaviours in one way so that it shapes what emotions you have, when you have them, how you experience them, and how you express them. So I know that's a mouthful, but it's saying there's a whole lot going on with emotion regulation. It's about the thoughts you've got, the behaviours you've got, 
I also think it's the other emotions you have, how you nest your emotions. If you go, oh, poor me, I'm ruminating again. Okay, that compassionate stance towards your own sufferings is a form of emotion regulation, and it's actually a very successful form that mindfulness researchers have been exploring. Now, the least costly way of managing emotions is if you appraise emotions in advance. Okay, so you're not shutting the door after the horse is bolted. You've absolutely got the cognitive machinery to interpret emotions before they even get aroused. So if I'm psychopathic, I'm excellent at that. I go, emotions are weaknesses that people have. Boom. <laughs> I'm not going to go there. Ah, it's a bit scary though, isn't it? Right? Or you can sort of say, um, look, this is, you know, exams are terrifying but I tend not to die, so it'll be all right. So you interpret them as a challenge rather than a threat. That's appraisal. And it's not very costly cognitively because you can set up the schema or the framework in advance. The problem is, if someone already triggers an emotion in you, too late. You can't really reappraise. The emotion's already aroused. What do you do with it? Well, if it's one that's got a strong action tendency like fear, you can try not to run. Or if it's like anger and you feel like bopping someone on the nose, try not to, right? Or if it's something that makes you really feel like giggling and laughing, but it would be terribly inappropriate to do so, you try to inhibit your facial expressions. Very cognitively costly. Takes up a lot of brain space. B, takes up a lot of brain space, is the message from um, Richardson Gross. So you can get reappraisal in different ways. You can either have global reduction, like the psychopath who says emotions are weaknesses, or you can have expressive suppression. In other words, you can try not to show behavior that is aroused in a given situation but wouldn't be useful in that situation. But it all costs a bit, just some are less costly than others. So as soon as you're trying to um, regulate your mood, if you've got appraisal in place, it takes up less cognitive load than if you haven't got appraisal mechanisms already in place. In other words, emotion regulation consumes what's called cognitive resources. It's like it takes money out of your cognitive bank to suppress or not show emotions. Now, they were going to say in their study, is it reasonable to assume that all forms of emotion regulation are as costly as each other? They're sort of saying, if I've got to sort of regulate my expression, I'm going to have to self-monitor all the time. I'm going to have to self-correct if I'm starting to giggle when I shouldn't, right? That's going to be pretty continual outlay. I'm going to have to be watching myself the whole time. And they tested this in two different ways. And I'm just going to go really quickly here because I can put this article up online if you're interested. So they either showed you slides, and the slides were quite emotional, and they were telling you, as you're looking at these slides, I want you to keep a poker face so that if anybody was looking at you, they wouldn't know what was in the slides that you're looking at. Or I want you to watch this film clip in such a way that if anybody was looking at you, they wouldn't know the emotional content of the film clip that you were watching. So you've got to really try and not show feeling at all. And then with some of the slides, they were saying, giving you incidental information, like this guy's 32, he owns a Mercedes, and this woman is 29, she owns a Peugeot, you know. And then they'd ask you later, what kind of car did the woman own? If you've, if you've been viewing it under the condition of emotional suppression, you can't remember the incidental details. 
if I sort of say, what colour room were they in when the mistress threw the ceramic object at his head for being unfaithful? If you're viewing it under emotional suppression conditions, you didn't notice the wallpaper. It's not relevant, particularly, but you just didn't have enough cognitive resources to notice incidental details. You wouldn't be a very good eyewitness, for instance. Okay. So suppression participants who had to view things not showing feeling had less confidence in their memories and actually had less detailed memories. So suppression costs is the short message. And also suppression can also lead to what's called ironic rebound, where you think more about the thing you're not supposed to be thinking about at all. And you all know, I'm sure, Wegner's study of don't think about a white bear, or you'll know probably in everyday life if you're dieting, don't think about eating pasta or chocolate or something like that. Okay. Now, Fraley and Shaver did a really interesting study that linked together attachment styles and affect regulation styles. He, Fraley and Shaver found or suggested that would, there wouldn't be any kind of rebound with personally intrusive thoughts if the personally intrusive thoughts were the kind that you had already got really expert at suppressing. Okay. In other words, if you've already developed all sorts of defensive strategies so that you redirect your attention to unrelated thoughts every time one of these thoughts comes up, then it's not going to be very cognitively costly for you to do that. That was their theory. So they, what they did was they got two sets of people that were both insecurely attached, avoidance and preoccupied, and they got them to think about your partner leaving you for someone else. Now, they were saying that dismissive avoidance, if they're only mopping up, that is, if they're only managing to suppress the overt signs of affective arousal, but the more bodily level of arousal still occurring, they should show the rebound phenomenon. That was their way of thinking. However, if they've managed really to be able to pull the plug on the whole attachment system, so it's like they're just not going to go there, they should have fewer rebound thoughts. And that was exactly what they found. They found that people that were preoccupied in their attachment style had rebound all over the place, but the dismissives had lower number of thoughts when they were asked to think about their partner leaving them than they did in the control condition. I can't remember what they were doing in the control condition. It was something like, think about what shoes of yours you'd throw out or something like that. They had oh, far out. So the, the control is your partner's going to the grocery store. Thank you. That's really cool. I couldn't remember that detail. Excellent. Okay. So they've decided and shown that these people have got quite different ways of affect regulating. So you can sort of see that the dismissives win in terms of cognitive costs. So the cognitive costs of keeping one's cool, great title, um, it doesn't apply for everybody. Some people can be so cool all the time as a habitual style of being that it just doesn't cost them anymore. They're so quick to pick up on the latent activation of affective schemas that they can defuse it before the emotion even arises. Pretty, pretty clever. So what they found was that this is exactly what dismissive avoidant people can do. They can suppress the latent activation of the system. They're not just concealing distress. They're actually not having the distress. You can actually wire them up, and the, there still isn't that sort of bodily signaling. But what's interesting is that they also ask them about the intensity of their attachment to their loved other. 
and they found that that was slightly diminished as well. So do they win? I'm not sure, because it means you're not quite as attached, because it's a bit too scary to be attached. They may live palely, which is why I wrote that little article on living palely. Okay, so at a really broad level, and we're going to revisit this in the final lecture on personality change, you have quite different affective personality dispositions. You have people that move towards the world, joy, curiosity, interest, surprise. You've got people that move away from the world, who withdraw, more negative, more fearful, more anxious, more self-protective. And you've got people who move against the world. They're, they oppose, they resist, and they control, sometimes via aggression, but not always. There are other ways of, of moving against the world than just being aggressive. You can be a protester, civil disobedience, that sort of thing. Okay, so the next phase, or perhaps part and parcel of the whole attachment process, really, is coming to trust. That's what attachment teaches us. Are other people trustworthy? Is it worth your while hanging out? So interpersonally, trust is defined as an individual's characteristic belief, so it's part of your personality, that you can rely on others to be sincere, benevolent, or truthful. So it's kind of this broad disposition, one of the broadest and one of the most useful. But you can actually be, you know, at extremes of trust, and there's some quite good scales if you want to find out where you are. Being very high or very low on trust is that associated with difficulties in relating to others with interpersonal difficulties. Well, I expected that being really high on trust would have its difficulties, but it, it's just not the case. There doesn't seem to be any negative drawback from being a trusting individual. Such people are not gullible or exploitable, which, is, which was my fear. That's because gullibility's actually got more to do with dependence than it has to with trust. Gullibility's when you've got unwarranted trust. You know, you trust someone where all the warning signs are there that you really shouldn't be trusting this person. You know those um, Nigerian things that you get in your inbox? You know, there's $130,000 million, and I just want to transfer it to your bank account. If you just send me your banking password and details, thank you very much. Any problem with that? Hmm, yeah. So gullibility, I'm terribly gullible, so I've actually got enormous sympathy for gullible people, can I just say? It's terrible, but anyway. So it's got much more to do with dependence than trust. It means that you trust when the signs are there, and you actually really shouldn't trust. I prefer trust as a default, I suppose, and I reconfigure when the evidence suggests that perhaps I really shouldn't, but sometimes I'm a bit slow on that, which is why I think I'm still gullible. Okay. So being high on distrust is related to, in rank order, being vindictive, domineering, cold, intrusive, and socially avoidant. So it's not a great picture, but you haven't got a choice. If you've had a horrible life environment, you will end up being high on distrust through no fault of your own. Um, being high on trust, um, Gertman thought might be related to being exploitable, non-assertive, and overly nurturant, but he didn't actually discover that that was the case. Doesn't, that seems to be more true of gullible people. So how did he explore this? 
He uses Horowitz's inventory of interpersonal problems. I've actually got the scale if you're interested in having a look at it. Um, so these are kind of self-described difficulties. It's not that other people think you've got these difficulties. You think you've got these difficulties. And it's relating, it's when relating to others cause di significant distress to you. So it's hard for me to say no to other people. I'm too easily persuaded by other people. It's hard for me to join in on groups. I keep other people at a distance too much. It's hard for me to do what another person wants me to do. I argue with other people too much, etc. Those are the kinds of interpersonal problems. Now, when Gertman did factor analysis of these interpersonal problems, he found that there were two major factors, love and dominance. And actually... This is a really great way to think clinically because some people seem to be orchestrated around love and other people seem to be orchestrated around power. And you pick it very early on clinically. So I actually genuinely think this is quite a good axis. I'm suddenly aware, though, that that was the axis in Donnie, the Donnie Darko film, wasn't it, where he was incredibly abusive to the teacher. She was going, love and fear. And he was so he ridiculed her so much that I think they were going to expel him from school. So I don't want to seem like I'm reproducing her analysis. But these two factors seem to emerge quite strongly if you analyze interpersonal difficulties. So you've got hostility versus friendliness, and you've got dominance versus submission using principal components analysis. So the problems that were faced by low trusters were what problems you suffered depended on what kind of low truster you were. Are you a dominating low truster? I'm not going to trust because I like to stay in control. Or were you a hostile distruster? People are schmucks. Why would I trust them? Right? That's the hostile itch. Machiavellians, guess which one they were? Yeah, the hostile. Well done. Not just They're not just low in trust. They are low in trust, but that's not all. If you looked at the low trusters compared to the high max, there were about four items of difficulty that they had in common. I'm not going to bother you with them, but just to say there were those difficulties. But they seemed to be easily distinguishable in terms of which particular interpersonal difficulties they had. What I want to focus on here is if you look at where they lie in conceptual space, given that the conceptual space is, is marked out by assured dominant to unassured submissive and from cold-hearted to warm agreeable. What you find is that the Machiavellians, sorry for those that aren't present in the lecture theatre who can't see where I'm pointing, but the Machiavellians were just about 10 degrees north of cold-hearted in the assured dominant space, whereas the low trusters were 90 degrees away from that in the top right-hand quadrant. So it's like, yes, they've got low trust, but they've got something else added to it as well. And that's reproduced from the paper, which is already online, if this is your kind of thing. It's great stuff to do research on. Okay. So think about it. It's kind of like a recipe. I'm saying... What sort of attachment styles have people got? How do they regulate their emotions? What sort of view of self have they got? What kind of view of another person have they got? Um, how trusting are they? And it's like, and then what else have they got in that trust? Like, what is it that makes them um, not trusting of others? I'm trying to piece together a whole profile 
in a sense, so you can work out how to define, how to explore, how to know how it is that people ended up with the particular combination of traits that they've got. Do you remember in the first lecture I was saying the five-factor model, it tells you no story at all as to why a person ended up more agreeable or less agreeable. Excuse me. What I'm trying to say is I want to be able to tell you why a person ended up high Machiavellian or low Machiavellian, why they ended up high on psycho psychopathy or low on psychopathy. In other words, there's a story to be told, an explanatory causal story about how they got there. So it looks like Machiavellians have difficulties being intimate, being submissive and sociable, because power, status orientation, if you're worried where you are on the hierarchy, you're usually quite concerned with power and you want to rank pretty well in regards to others. So you tend to be a bit shame-averse and all that kind of stuff, but oriented towards power. They tend to be a bit too controlling, and um, this, a similar kind of pattern is there for the people low in trust, but it's slightly attenuated or backed off. Interestingly, both the low trusters had elevated interpersonal distress, and so did the Machiavellians. I, I find that kind of amazing. So you can work out, using the interpersonal trust scale, the kind of dominance distrust that, um, that is measured by the interpersonal trust scale, and the kind of hostility distrust that's measured by the Machiavellian scale. So there are lots of pains as a result of not trusting others. You have lots of interpersonal difficulties and distress. And you find the Machiavellians in a weirdly paradoxical position. They're cold, they're calculating, they're arrogant, they seem not to care at all about others, and yet they're in incredible distress of an interpersonal nature. It's an odd thing, isn't it? Yeah. I think they're aware of the distress, yeah. They would probably blame it on the other. You know what I mean? They wouldn't necessarily see that they contributed to it. They would just think, that's the world. You know, people, they're just so terrible. But yeah, I think they'd be aware of the distress, but not necessarily their contribution to it. So if you think about personality, a lot of personality does interface with how we relate to others. It's, it's how our personality forms, but it's also what really shapes our personality in an ongoing way. How, are we mutually aware? Are we able to be independent on others? Can we show commitment? Can we be responsive to others? Can we sustain emotional bonds even if they get damaged, if things go wrong? Okay, so just a couple of words on trust now. Trust is basically the assumption that your needs and expectations, sorry, that your partner will meet your needs and expectations and that this is important for you to um, have so that relationships can be rewarding and satisfying. But there's two different kinds of trust. There's a general tendency to trust, but there's also state trust. I bet when you go in to do a psych experiment, you are never in state trust, are you? It's like, what are they doing that they're not telling? Yeah, right, that's what you're measuring, sure. <laughs> Don't you reckon? It's like, oh, man, I'm low on trust because I know what psychology's like. You know, we all know that. So you can be an incredibly trusting person and not be very trusting at the moment that you're in a psych experiment. Or you can be incredibly distrustful in general, but you've got one friend that you really rely on and trust. So you can have quite specific forms of trust. And what I'm interested in is trust is a precursor of relationships. I bring my level of trust into a relationship. 
But then if I'm treated very well, my trust level might even go up. Or if I'm treated very badly, my trust level might go down. So it's both a precursor and a consequence of the dynamics of close interpersonal relationships. And it impacts the way that your relationship unfolds. And unfortunately, you know, you come out of that relationship with a net loss or gain in trust, I suppose. There's, there's global trust as well. That's a kind of generalized expectancy. When you measure a Machiavellian worldview or a psychopathic worldview, that's what you're measuring at some level, a global trust. And they're not very high on it, basically. Can you rely on individuals or groups? Are humans basically honest? This is the Machiavellian or the psychopathic worldview, and they answer in the negative. You can have a global trust that's based a deep faith in humanity. You expect your culture to be pretty cool. You think society does its best. Um, in other words, Erickson suggests it's one of the most vital kind of turning points in your life, really. It's a sort of psychosocial challenge or problem. And you either resolve it in, some, in terms of having basic trust, that the world's going to be kind rather than do ill by you, or you resolve it in the direction of mistrust, that you expect the world to be a dangerous place that's going to be uncomfortable and difficult. So you can either have a global trust in your caregiver, in the mutuality of relationships, or you can trust life itself. You can see how broad this can go. And Bowlby would suggest that, in a sense, the very things that underpin attachment theory are going to be the things that shape your global trust. Initially, it's all about a caretaker, but it ends up being a mental representation about the whole world and significant others for the child. So it goes from a very specific relationship to a very generalized worldview. And if you have positive or negative expectations and they're met or not met, through social learning theory, Rotter suggests, you end up either with a, a trusting personality or a distrustful personality. So trust, it's, this is a bit depressing if you're not a trusting person, so you know, apologies for that. It's like, it's, it's related to being effective at seeking emotional support, it's better, you have better health, you cope better under stress, you're more agreeable, Agreeableness is measured as taking people at face value. So if you're psychoanalytically inclined and you think people have an unconscious and are defended in their view of the world, you don't end up being all that agreeable because you don't take people at face values. But being trustworthy is, is linked to pro-social behavior, empathic concern, perspective taking, having a benevolent interpretation of one's partner's behavior. They were late because they were working rather than they were late because they were out with their Floozy or their other partner or whatever, okay? It's linked to having an internal locus of control and a willingness to undertake new social endeavors, social skills, and happiness. So you can sort of see if you aren't a trusting person, there are enormous advantages to getting to the maximum level of trust that's possible for your particular personality style. Relational trust is much more specific. So that global trust was much more of a worldview thing. Relational trust is about an emotional bond between you and a specific someone else. And usually that's something that you negotiate in the long term in life. It's, it's quite concrete, immediate beliefs about the fairness, the honesty, 
and the positive feelings that you have in, in regards to a specific relational partner. It's things like if you're telling a story and you get it wrong, if they tell, if they correct you at all, they'll do it in a really gentle way so that you don't feel publicly humiliated. They're not going to betray you. They're not going to hurt you. Those are the sorts of relational trust expectations. Now, what's interesting is that at its earliest expression, trust is just a kind of hope. You kind of, sure, you've got a history with that partner, but if you trust them tomorrow, you can never have evidence about what they're going to do tomorrow. You're just going to have to hope that they are trustworthy. So trust always goes beyond the data. That's the interesting thing about it. It's actually quite a risky thing to trust somebody. Because, yes, it's based on the past, but you've got to make a positive inference about tomorrow. And tomorrow is always unknown. So hopefully trust is something that increases through shared investments and sharing in the longer term as a result of your history with someone. But those who are really high on certainty, they want to be absolutely sure. They don't want to go beyond the data. They're either going to be extremely high or low in trust. It's only the people that can tolerate uncertainty that are, un are in the middle zones of trusting behavior. Now, what's weird, and I've really got a lot of horrific evidence to back this up, unfortunately, is that we tend to filter our information about our partner based on our own levels of trust. This global trust correlates quite strongly, point four, with specific relationship trust, but there's a lot more going on in global trust. Now, interpersonal betrayal, what's weird about that is interpersonal betrayal is specific, right? And I've said that specific relationship trust only correlates point four with global trust. But they must be in some kind of ongoing, dynamic, updating connection. Because if you get a horrible experience with an, a relational partner, your trust in humanity goes down. So you actually update and you're a little bit more cynical in the phases immediately following tough times. Thank goodness we hit the reload button and refresh the screen and go back more to our dispositional level of trust. But we can lose global trust as a result of specific experiences. But people who are low on both global and relational trust, they're, they're distrustful. They're actually more likely to betray their relational partners, which is quite strange, isn't it? But the work that one of my doctoral students, Parvani, was doing on um, domestic violence in Sri Lanka, she actually found that the women who are most likely to be injured within an inch of their lives sometimes by their partners were injured by someone who was having an affair and who therefore was assuming that the woman was also having an affair and acted violently almost as if they were sure and had concrete evidence that the woman was having an affair when she wasn't. So note to self, if you're behaving in an untrustworthy way and you have doubts about your partner's trustworthiness, a moment of self-reflective insight would be a good thing at that moment. Am I not trusting them? Because I'm actually not all that trustworthy at the moment, right? So allowing yourself to have that thought will make you more in touch with 
reality, namely, are they actually trustworthy? Well, I'm not sure at the moment because I'm not being trustworthy, so I'm viewing them through the filter of my own behavior at the moment. I think those things are very, very useful things to be able to think um, in psychological terms. So those who are high in trust are the people that tend not to game play with you. Um, they're not going to pretend that they're busy next week when they're actually just washing their hair to keep you keen. They're not going to treat you mean to keep you keen. They're going to go, yes, I really like you. Yes, I'd love to see you. Yes, next week's fine. What day? I don't care. <laughs> you know, any day, right? High trusters, right? They're not going, and they're not going to be those desperate love people either. Like, you can't leave me. I really need you. My life will fall apart if you go, etc. Okay, these things are kind of carryovers from last year's lectures, but I just want to mention, I want to mention this just for the record. We're almost at the end of this lecture now, and I know it's been a long one. I hope you're still awakened with a pulse. Whether or not people are able to pull the plug on thoughts about their partner leaving them depends on how you assess their attachment, and I think this is quite important. If I get a dis dismissive avoidantly attached person and I put them through the adult attachment interview, their heart rates are going to go through the roof, they're going to be really hyper-aroused, they're not going to ab be able to avoid emotions because I'm going to be leaping over their defensive barriers, asking them pointed, direct, detailed questions, and they can't distract in the interview situation. Whereas if I just get them to use the Hazan and Shaver measure, they're actually going to be able to distract, avoid, not self-report. So in other words, if I'm just if I've got them in the laboratory and I'm actually interviewing them, I'm going to get different results than if I get them to do a self-report questionnaire, think about their partner leaving them online. Okay, they're going to be able to go distract, distract, distract. Okay, but if I keep the, like a good interviewer, if I keep the heat on, they're not going to be able to avoid and distract so much. So thanks, that was just, you know. There are, in other words, there's, I know that the, I've said to you that there are two distinct forms of avoidance, dismissing and fearful, but even the dismissing avoidant is not going to be as effective at that advanced reappraisal of terrifying thoughts if you keep the heat on them in terms of an interview style. Okay, so a different assessment methods match there. And in fact, what's interesting about the different assessment methods is that what the adult attachment interview is actually looking at is not just the content of what you say, you know, how many thoughts and emotions, but they're actually looking at the sort of formal characteristics of how you talk about your partner. You know, is there evidence of de denial, repression, compulsive self-reliance, you know, a kind of disgusted, sort of um, ashamed feeling in talking about being attached or connected to others. So they're going to be able to pick up on the way in which you speak about um, attachment experiences. And it may be that the person themselves doesn't have insight into that. They may think, yes, I'm securely attached. I just don't need people very much. Okay, <laughs> But the interviewer is going to pick up on things that the other doesn't necessarily have full insight into, which is why it's a lovely thing to have you know, different assessment methods rather than just rely on self-report. Now, what Bartholomew's um, 
scheme. Do you know this from other lectures? You look at the sort of uh, degree of anxiety and dependency that a person has on the approval of the other. That's the views of self as positive or negative. And their view of others as to how trustworthy, um, likely to help the other is, whether they've got positive or negative views of um, depending on others. So it's a kind of an orthogonal two-dimensional scheme like many things in the psychology. So the secure basically have got an internalized sense of self-worth. They're comfortable with intimacy and close relationships. They're preoccupied as the people that are anxiously seeking to gain acceptance and validation. So they have to keep thinking about others. They can't really set themselves free and just think about the external world so much. People who are fearful are going to be highly dependent on the acceptance of others because they've got but because they've got negative expectations of others, they avoid intimacy so that they don't feel the pain of loss or the pain of rejection. Whereas the dismissing, they've got the same behaviours, but they've got different motivations. They avoid closeness because they have got very negative expectations of what's likely to arise from close relationships. And so defensively, they deny the value of close relationships in advance, kind of in a reappraisal sort of way. So what arises out of that is that, that you apprehend the world in a different way. You become socially responsive to others in ways that are mediated by the cognitions that have arisen as a result of your attachment experiences. You, you form, if you like, knowledge structures that enable you to anticipate future events. When you've also got a capacity for language, then suddenly you can symbolically imagine events that haven't yet happened, or you can recreate for yourself events that are no longer part of your life. And that's when you start to be able to do what's called mental time travel. You can only really start to travel in time mentally when you've got that symbolic capacity for language. Now, what's interesting, too, is that as soon as you have that capacity for language, you start to be able to... Um, form a, an image of yourself that you can avow, a narrative about yourself, if you like, a story about yourself, about who you are. And that shapes and forms the way that you connect to others as well. And that's that's something that you, you tend to think, oh, by the time you're writing stories and narratives about yourself, your personality's already formed. Not really so. The, the narratives that you have can actually shape your emotional experiences, what you hope for, what you expect, and how you anticipate. So, really quick recap. The developmental milestones. You've got to develop a sense of self as separate from others. We all use people to start with, but once we develop a theory of mind, we become aware of people as whole others who think and feel as we do. So if we don't think of others as whole others, and psychopaths, Machiavellians, and narcissists don't, then something has gone wrong right back at that early theory of mind stage. See how you can use it diagnostically to work out how early did something go wrong. I've gone through today all sorts of developmental milestones that shape how we're poised in life. And I suppose the resultant of our attachment experiences, how well we can balance focusing on ourselves, our inner world. Are we preoccupied with others because we're either fearful or preoccupied? 
Or have we had such a nice secure base that we can now be quite balanced in our focus between self, world, and other? What Lambie and Marcel suggest, that if you're avoidantly attached, you're world-focused, but it's to the exclusion of others, and it's to the exclusion sometimes of your inner world as well. You've pulled the plug on that a bit, and you're focused on the world to sort of distract you. But that might be how you end up being an extrovert, you know, that's focused on the world. If you're secure, they suggest there's that lovely flexible balance. You can sort of turn the beam of attention, depending on what's optimal for you right now. You haven't ended up sort of stuck because of a less than optimal life experience, either excessively focused on the inner world or excessively focused on the mother that might abandon you or focused on the world because people are too scary. But if you're ambivalent or preoccupied, they suggest that you're a little bit self-focused and that may be because um, emotions uh, are not readily soothed. But there's a good piece of research to be done in there, I would say, because the, the data's not in yet on this. One of the things that I'm interested in, and it will become a theme for later lectures, is how we attend to our inner experiences. Because that can be, become a personality disposition in its own right. And I think that it's at this level that you can end up being predisposed to PTSD, rumination, and reflection. So if you are a ruminator, it's possibly at this level that change needs to occur. So what can shape your patterns of attending? I've said attachment styles. The problem is the emotions themselves also shape what you attend to. If you're anxious, you're scouring the world for threat. Okay? You're looking at the world, but you're looking for negative things. If you're in a state of curiosity, you're a bit flaky. You're focusing on the world, but you don't really know what you're looking for. Anything that catches your eye, basically. So the emotions themselves orient you in different ways, and that's quite an important thing to remember. Also, your affective schemas, what sort of, uh, sort of mini worldview has started to form. That really shapes your patterns of attending as well. What you then do with your affects and drives, okay, I've got a body, I've got a temperament, I'm not really that inhibited, but I've got to work on my inhibition because I want to be a good citizen in a capitalist culture and I want to wait for bigger gains later, right? I'm going to have to work on that. I'm going to have to enlist my prefrontal cortex and develop all sorts of conscious strategies. I'm going to have to stop being so impulsive and getting straight into action. I'm going to have to learn how to think first before I am impelled into action. The problem is, though, well, I can hit all sorts of difficult developments around this. And this is kind of me segueing now into what's really going to be the focus of next week's lecture. Do I end up neurotic or do I end up borderline? If I'm neurotic, I've usually got conflicts between my desires and my morality or my impulses and my ideals. But if I've got borderline issues, the trouble is usually much earlier than that. Because those impulses, I mean, those conflicts tend to be around neurotic conflicts around three, four, five. Borderline's usually much earlier, around one and two, where you've had difficulties even tolerating the fact that you've got a body and that it's sending these signals to you. And so there's all sorts of concerns about surviving as a person when others feel harmful, being able to allow yourself to experience feelings when they seem terrifying, being able to allow yourself to experience drives when they seem potentially overwhelming. So borderline issues tend to be, can you even let yourself experience drives and emotions? 
Or does even going there mean, oh my God, no sooner do I start to experience them, I'm doing something about them and I shouldn't be. This suggests that the difficulty has been a very early difficulty, usually from the first year of life. They're unable to feel separate while attached. They're unable to be dependent, but also trust that they will be cared for. So if you're working clinically with these people, you need to know that these are the sources of conflict. And so what happens with borderline people, and this is very clearly specified in the literature, and it, they're very, very uh, difficult people to work with um, clinically, because there's this lack of self and other differentiation. The differentiation tends to be based on good and bad, splitting, that people become angels and demons in their world. And they can't have, uh, or they have with great difficulty, mature conceptions of others as they've got good and bad features. You know, they've got their faults, but they're still lovable. And they can't feel those things about themselves. If they've done one wrong thing, it's like everything about them is worthless. Okay. So what we need to, what we need to realize is that being able to feel concerned for another person is a developmental achievement because we start out using other people. Being able to see people as whole others with minds and thoughts and feelings of their own is also a developmental achievement. And to be able to see others as whole and flawed, we have to be able to tolerate the full range of our own emotional experience without splitting off the bad things about ourselves. We have to be able to tolerate the fact that we get angry, that we do shameful things, that we are impelled to behave in less than ideals, ideal ways sometimes. In other words... We need to be able to move from seeing others in terms of being fragmented as good or bad into being good and bad. And so we have to be able to tolerate quite powerful feelings and desires to be able to get there in order to be able to develop a morality. Okay, thank you so much for your attention. That was Lecture 24 from the series Philosophy of Psychoanalysis, presented by Associate Professor Doris McElwain. The theme song to the show was created by Rose Mackenzie Peterson. The producer is myself, Nina McElwain. Thanks to Andrew Jeeves and John Sutton. Speak soon. Mm-hmm.